Welcome to Meadowbrook Church, loving Jesus by loving people. For more information about who we are, find us online at www.meadowbrook.ca. All right, Luke chapter 10 today. If you have a Bible, meet me there in Luke chapter 10. If you need a Bible, there's a Bible on the pew in front of you. It's page 1040 in that Bible. And as we start, we're in week two of our series that we're calling Christ's Stories, Parables for Today. Looking at some of Jesus' parables, uh, he told dozens of them. We're not going to cover all of them, but some of his most important ones. And what do they mean for us as Christ followers? And taking some time to really dig into that. Our key verse for this series is 1 John 2, 6. Whoever claims to live in him must walk or live as Jesus did. If we're going to call ourselves Christ followers, we actually do have to follow after the way of Christ. And even though we understand that nobody does this perfectly, that we all still stumble and struggle, it means that if we are going to be followers of Jesus, that we have ordered our lives, we have reoriented ourselves to his lordship and to his teaching. And because of that, it should be pretty important to us to look at, well, what did he actually teach us? How does he want us to live? What did he teach and not just what did he teach, what did he model for us in terms of what it means to live as a follower of Jesus. I'm going to show you a short clip before we jump into our text today. Uh, it's from America's Funniest Home Videos, and this has shown up in lots of different uh, incarnations over the years, but we're going back to the original Bob Saget version this morning, and we're going to take uh, just a minute here to look at a clip before we start. Take a look. And all of God's people said, aww, cute, right? And I could not have come up with a better picture of actually where we're going today uh, as we talk about what does love look like and what does love look like when we lay down ourselves for the sake of another person. And if you forget everything else I say today, remember that picture of that little guy uh, doing what he needed to do, putting himself on the line, laying himself down for the sake of somebody else. And it's just an awesome picture of love and an awesome picture of where we are today. So we're in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Let's read our text today, Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then, the man, then put the man on his own donkey, brought him to the inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. 
So that is one of the more well-known parables of Jesus. And just like last week we dived into the prodigal son, and you go, even if you don't go to church or if you're not a believer, most people know the gist of the prodigal son story, and most people know the gist of the Good Samaritan story to the point where Good Samaritan has become a term that we use, really, for anybody uh, who stops, right? You'll see it on the news. A Good Samaritan stopped and helped someone at the side of the road. So the story is well-known, and it comes as Jesus responds to a question, uh, a theological debate that has started about the nature of love. What is love and who am I supposed to love? So an expert of the law, this is a Bible teacher, a Bible expert of Jesus' time, someone who knows their scripture, starts a conversation with him, and it turns into this, this question of the nature of love itself. What is the most important commandment? Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus would say this is the most important thing. And so this expert of the law wants to take it a step further. Well, then who is my neighbor? If I'm to love my neighbor as myself, who am I called to love? And for the Jewish people of Jesus' day, the answer in their heads at that time would have been the Jewish people. That's who you are called to love. You don't have to love the non-Jewish people. You don't have to love the pagans. To love meant you loved your family, you loved your tribe, you loved your neighbors, you loved the people who believed. Even Jewish people who weren't actively following after the Lord, you didn't really have to love them in the same way. So for the, the people of the time, when you come to the question of who is my neighbor, who do I have to love, uh, the, the answer standard would have been, well, I love the people who are like me. I love the people who love me. I love the people who are close to me. And then Jesus tells a story in response to this question that turns that whole idea completely upside down. He turns it completely backwards beyond just uh, loving the people who love you or loving the people who are like you. He brings a very different definition of love for us. So I want to talk about the Samaritan for a minute, because knowing who they are is going to help us understand this story. Uh, you read through the Gospels, you can pick up, even if you don't know a lot of the backstory, you pick up on some tension between Jewish people and Samaritans as you read through the Gospel, and there was really uh, long-standing reasons for that. So King Solomon was the king over Israel, and uh, he was King David's son, and King Solomon reigned. And when King Solomon died, the nation actually split in two. There is civil war, and the nation splits into two different nations. Jeroboam becomes king of the north. Rehoboam becomes king of the south. The northern kingdom becomes known as the kingdom of Israel, and the southern kingdom becomes known as the kingdom of Judah. Jerusalem is in the south. That's where the temple is. That's where David's descendants reign. Israel sets up its own kingdom, its own uh, reign, its own godly line, or kingly line, I should say not godly line all the time. And for certain points in Israel's history, this split happens about a thousand years before Jesus is born. And it exists this way for a couple hundred years. And for certain points in there, uh, they get along. They're kind of on the same page. Occasionally they would unite uh, to fight against outside threats and other forces. But for most of the time, these nations were against each other. Uh, it began in war and bloodshed. Uh, and even in times of peace, they didn't really get along. And they often uh, entered into alliances with other nations against each other and so there's a lot of animosity between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom of Israel sets its capital initially in Shechem and then eventually sets their capital in the city of Samaria and the whole area becomes known as Samaria and so these were people who were uh, opposed to the southern kingdom and even though they were all Jewish they fought against each other uh, the north especially had a tendency to fall into idolatry and embrace other gods from other religions and so there's a lot of animosity going back a thousand years before Jesus walks the earth. And so the north and the south do not get along. They kill each other. They go to war against each other. They raid each other. Uh, they are not on friendly terms. 
In 720, the Assyrian Empire begins to take over the Middle East, and, and much of the known civilized world falls under their rule. And so they invade Israel, and the northern kingdom falls to the Assyrian Empire. The southern kingdom of Judah is able to resist, but the northern kingdom falls and becomes a part of the Assyrian Empire. This is a pagan empire. It's very powerful. And one of the things that empires used to do when they took over, when you invaded a territory and took it over, you didn't want to risk that the newly conquered people might rise up against you, right? You wanted them submissive, you wanted them taken care of. So what you would do was you would go into your new territory, you would take the brightest and the best of those people, and you would scatter them amongst the rest of your empire so that they were not able to unite in the territory and they couldn't unite anywhere else. You just, you dispersed them. And then you took people from your empire, other Assyrians in this case, and you moved them into the new territory so that they could establish themselves there and so you're trying to remove any threat of rebellion. So that's what happens to the northern kingdom of Israel. Israel is invaded, they are beaten, they are scattered amongst the Assyrian Empire, and Assyrians move into the neighborhood and they settle in the land of Israel. What ends up happening is for the, uh, the few Jewish people who are remaining in the kingdom of Israel, they begin to intermarry with the Assyrians because that's kind of all the people there is. All your best and brightest just got exiled. So they begin to intermarry with the Assyrian people who are coming in, and they weren't supposed to do that as followers of God's law. God's law wanted the Jewish people to stay within the Jewish bloodline, and so they were commanded not to intermarry with other nations, and one of the reasons for that was God says, if you do that, you will start to abandon me and follow after their pagan practices, and that also is exactly what happens. So the former kingdom of Israel begins to intermarry. They begin to uh, lay aside scripture to some extent. They still believe in it. They still believe in the Lord, but they begin to compromise it with some idol worship and some other things. And so for the, the Jewish people who lived in the south, who lived in the kingdom of Judah, they looked at uh, what was happening in the north, and the Assyrians and the Jewish people, as they came together and started a, a new race, essentially, uh, the new descendants became known as Samaritans because they were in the region of Samaria. And Samaritans were viewed by the Jewish people in the south as those who had compromised God's word, they had compromised their bloodline, they had compromised their tradition and their ancestors and their heritage, they had compromised worship, they had compromised their purity, they were seen and they were called uh, compromisers by nature, and they had just uh, compromised everything that was important to the Jewish people uh, with the Assyrian Empire. And so that is who the Samaritans are. On the flip side, the Samaritans felt like a little bit, hey, we did what we had to do in the midst of a terrible situation, and you Jewish people in the South, you are self-righteous, you think you're better than everybody, you are arrogant, you are condescending, and so with that, uh, as much as it was just sort of initially a difference of opinion, maybe politically, uh, now there's sort of an ethnic side to the disagreement, and there's a religious side to the disagreement. And so the Assyrian Empire would rule for a while. It would fall. Uh, the Babylonian Empire would take over the whole area, including the Southern Kingdom. Then the Greek Empire would take over everything, and then the Roman Empire would take over everything. And so when Jesus is born, Rome is in charge of the nation of Israel in its entirety. Israel is a, a province of the Roman Empire. And Israel was basically divided into three sections geographically. There's Galilee in the north, that's where Nazareth is, that's where Jesus was raised. There's Judea in the south, that's where Jerusalem is and Bethlehem is. And then Samaria in the middle, and Samaria was still full of Samaritans, those who had uh, intermarried and who had compromised themselves. And the tension between the Jews and the Samaritans was intense, it was violent, it was bloody. 
it was not just a difference of opinion where we say like, oh, there's some tension between English Canadians and French Canadians. No, this was a blood feud that went back a thousand years from when armies used to fight against each other and kill each other. And then all this religious and ethnic stuff got mixed up in there. But the Jews and the Samaritans would raid each other's territories. They would kill one another. And then it eventually became, as violence often does, just this retaliatory cycle of kind of tit-for-tat violence where they would raid and kill some, and then the other side would come back and raid and kill some, and they did terrible things to each other. The Samaritans came at one point and desecrated the Jewish temple, uh, and, and just, it was such a vicious, bloody, ongoing, long-time, simmering blood feud going on. Does that make sense? All right, we're gonna, that's important to know in this story. Because that context actually becomes hugely important as we look at the fact that a Samaritan stops to help a Jewish man on the side of the road and how shocking that would have been for people to hear Jesus tell that story. Because as this story unfolds, there is a priest who comes by, a man of God, a Jewish man of God comes and he walks on by. He doesn't help. A Levite comes along. This is also a professional minister who works in the temple of the Lord. A Jewish man who is a professional man of God comes by, sees the man wounded, and walks on by. And then a Samaritan, of all people, a Samaritan comes and stops and sacrifices and, and spends money and, and is inconvenienced. He comes, of all people, he comes and helps and this is Jesus' answer to what does love look like. Love looks like even stopping for your enemies and taking care of their needs and putting them first. And, and just how easy it is for us just to, to walk on by in our lives. So the man is on a journey, uh, the man of our story. This is a picture of the road between Jerusalem and Jericho. It's from the 1800s. It's all paved now, obviously. But even in this in the 1800s, uh, you can get a sense of how it might kind of be a scary place, right? Especially if you're in enemy territory. Uh, so if you are a Jewish person traveling through Samaria, um, the, the road was known as dangerous. It was just, it was in the hills. It was really windy and curvy. Uh, there was distance between the, the public places. And so it was a really easy place to set an ambush. It was a really easy place to rob somebody. Uh, if you were robbed and beaten like the man in our story, there was no super easy way to get help to you or for you to get to help. And so it was a sketchy, dangerous place. And, and you get a sense of it even just a little bit from that picture. And so the man starts off on his journey. He's by himself. Uh, he gets attacked and he gets robbed. And it says they leave him for dead at the side of the road. He is unconscious. He is bleeding. Uh, he is in rough shape. And that is where we find him. And the Samaritan comes upon him, and Jesus says, had pity on him. His heart is moved. Compassion is stirred up. Now, that's an enemy lying there. That is someone who's, even if he himself didn't do it, his family or his ancestors have tried to kill you and your family and your ancestors for your entire life. The current Jewish-Palestinian conflict is probably a pretty decent uh, picture of the kind of hatred and violence that we're looking at here. That is someone who, honestly, if he dies and you're a Samaritan, your life is maybe potentially a little easier after that. That's one less Jewish person trying to kill you. That's one less person you need to worry about trying to kill you and your kids and your family. And yet this enemy, with that level of, of rivalry and hatred and bloodshed and anger, the enemy is the one who stops. 
and not just stops, but, but pays and, and takes care and, and throws away his plans and, and gets messy and gets bloody and gets involved. And Jesus says that's what love is like because loving people is messy. Loving people is not always easy to do. Loving people sometimes can be very easy to do, but loving people is messy, and, and especially loving people who maybe don't love us or loving people who are, are burdened with, with lots of issues in life. It's not always easy to love. It's not always easy to love our spouses. It's not always easy to love our kids. Love can be messy. And so in our story, verse 31 to 32, a priest is going down the road. He walks by. A Levite is going down the road. He walks on by. Again, these are are people who were, I mean, even if you weren't bound by just common human decency, they were bound to help a fellow Jewish person who was in trouble in enemy territory. And even if they weren't bound by that, these are men of God. You would think they would have something in them that says, at least I'm kind of paid to do this, so I should probably stop and help. And they walk on by. They just keep on walking. And so the equivalent story is like, you know, if someone was in a car accident on the side of the road and it's, you know, a pastor saw it and kept on driving, a priest saw it and kept on driving, and then a radical Islamic jihadist stopped and helped the person that they've been conditioned and trained to kill. Like, that's how radical this story is, and this is Jesus saying, this is what loving your neighbor looks like. And there's been a lot of speculation as to why, and the text doesn't tell us why does the priest walk by, why does the Levite walk by, and, and we don't know because the text doesn't give us the answer. But just in speculation, theologians have weighed out different things of, you know, if they had duties at the temple they were trying to get to and felt like they couldn't stop without compromising the ministry, whether maybe they felt scared because they too are on this sketchy road, and if we stop, we might get robbed, so it was self-preservation possibly uh, to move along, whether they felt like just I, I don't want to get involved I'm not sure what to do I don't have any way to help so what's the point of me stopping I don't have a donkey like the Samaritan's gonna have you know whatever the reason one of the most interesting ones that is brought up and kicked around is the fact that they may have had biblical reasons to stop uh, God's law Leviticus 21 verse 11 talking about priests says priests were not allowed uh, to contact be in contact with a dead body it made them ceremonially unclean, and they would not be able to perform their duties at the temple. So it's possible, and again, it's just speculation, but it's possible that this priest was on his way to duties in Jerusalem at the temple and thought, oh, I, I can't break God's word by stopping to help, because if I stop to help, I'll be unclean, I'll be breaking this scripture, and i got to be faithful to the scripture. And if we can put ourselves in the shoes of the priest and the Levite, again, not knowing exactly why they didn't stop, but man, like we can come up with some even reasonable excuses to not stop. And it's just a lot easier to not stop. And this is an extreme example, obviously, and, and most of us as we drive home will probably not have the opportunity to save a life, but let's start to think about putting this in the context of real life now. So where in our lives uh, are we walking on by when there is someone hurting, when there is someone in need, when there is someone who needs help, when there is someone who needs a friend, when there's someone who needs to be invited over for dinner? Where are we walking on by? Because when it comes, you know, to the question of, you know, do you, do you stop and help someone or do you just keep on walking? It's 100% easier to just keep on walking. But Jesus says that's not what love looks like. And even sometimes as Christians, we go, ah, we have scripture that, that is, is on our side here in this situation. And there are people in our lives who, who maybe have hurt us or wounded us, and we kind of push them away. 
Or are there people groups? There are groups of people that Christians have often avoided or stayed away from because we've said, oh, I don't, I don't want to, there's scripture here, and I just, it's just easier just to, it's easier to walk on by than to try and live in this tension of scripture and, and love and, and what does that look like. And so, you know, if the priest is saying, the Bible clearly says I'm not supposed to stop and, and talk to this guy because he might be dead. Uh, the Bible is on my side in this. That's not actually uh, okay according to Jesus because he failed the test to love because the Bible also tells us to love your neighbor as yourself. And so this is not easy stuff. And when I say loving people is messy, I mean loving people is, is messy. I mean that uh, as we come to the end of this message today, I'm not going to be giving you a bunch of clear crystal answers to how to navigate life. I'm probably going to stir up more questions, and I'm okay with that today. Because as we walk with Jesus, even if we have our biblical convictions, even if we have our, our understanding of, of what we're supposed to do, uh, even if our Bible understanding seems clear, not every situation in life is crystal clear. Not everything fits into neat little packages of how we are supposed to, to react to things. And so we wrestle with this stuff. And we do it together. We don't do it by ourselves. And so where Christians as a group have said, we're going to avoid LGBT people, or we're going to avoid Muslim people, or, or there's someone in my life who hurt me, and it's easier just to cut them off. It's like, yeah, it is easier to do those things. It's just not necessarily the Christ-like thing to do. It's not necessarily the right thing to do. And so we have a bit of a, a problem when we want everything to be, you know, nice and neat and clean. And, and the problem is, is that we value Scripture. We put an incredibly high value on Scripture. And we put an incredibly high value on truth. And we put an incredibly high value on righteousness. And we put an incredibly high value on justice. And we put an incredibly high value on loving other people. And those values don't always fit together neatly every single time in every single situation. Life would be a lot easier if they would. It would have been easier for the Samaritan to say, that's an enemy, he might try to kill me, I'm just going to keep walking by. But he didn't. He jumped into the messiness of the situation and went, here's an enemy, he doesn't deserve my love and compassion, but I'm going to bring it to him anyway because it's the right thing to do. And the Samaritan passes this love test where the priest and the Levite, the men of God, failed at it. And so this story gets in our face a little bit. It's not light and fluffy. Last week we started with the prodigal son, and it's like, hey, God loves me more than anything. Isn't that wonderful? That's a good start. Some of these parables are going to get tougher as we go through, including today's. It challenges us to say, who in your life are you walking on by? Where is there hurt or need or lack or loneliness? Where is there somebody in your life who needs something? Because like the priest and Levite, it is easier just to live my own life and go on my own way. But Jesus is saying that's not what love looks like. And again, admittedly, this is a great big uh, scenario in this story, and most of us will not have to save a life on the way home. But the amazing thing is that Jesus told us, I am watching to see if you guys can bring a cup of cold water to somebody. Like, it's not the huge mass of things all the time. It's what are the little ways that we can reach out, that we can reconcile, that we can show love, that we can stop, that we can allow ourselves to be uh, inconvenienced in the course of taking care of someone. This Samaritan had plans, right? He was on the road for a reason, and he was willing to, to stop it all, to throw it all away. He spends a night at the inn with him, taking care of him. He gives him his money. He gives him uh, his time. He gives him his, his, his safety, potentially. He doesn't know if he's going to get robbed himself on that road. He just was willing to inconvenience himself, to take care of another person, because love is sometimes inconvenient, and it sometimes gets messy. 
And as much as we would love it to fit clearly into neat, simple packages and categories all the time, real life does not always work that way. And so we wrestle through it, and we wrestle through it together. Love can be messy and inconvenient. Not only that, love costs something. Right? Love costs us something of ourselves. It's easier to walk on by. It costs something to give up your time. It costs something to give up your money. When he goes to the innkeeper, he gives him two days' wages and says, this should cover it for a while, and if there's more, I'll hit you up on my way back. Like, blank check to the innkeeper to make sure that this guy's life gets saved. Right? Love costs him something, even just physically, financially, love costs him something. And love costs us something as well. When the Samaritan comes in verse 33-35, like he, he takes the time, he takes the effort, he, he bandages him, he, he pours on the oil and the wine, and these are to disinfect and to heal, and he takes his donkey. And again, whatever he was doing, uh, he did not say to himself, it's just easier to do my own thing. It's just easier to, to retreat into my world of Samaritans, and the Jews can stay with the Jews, and I'll stay with the Samaritans. He busts through that bubble and says, I'm going to stop, and I'm going to give, and I'm going to serve, and I'm going to help. And, and we are called to be like that as we follow after Jesus, is who needs our time? Who needs our, our inconvenience? Who needs our encouragement? Who needs our money, potentially? Where is there a need or a lack that we can actually stop and be a part of instead of just walking on by and pretending like it's not there? Uh, it's easy to do. It's easier to walk on by, but that's not what we were called to do. And even as we, uh, as Christians, as we are, are trying to figure out what does it mean to live a good life and to love people and yet hold on to our Bible convictions and, and when it comes, to, again, to certain people groups that we've traditionally stayed away from and ignored, what does love look like towards them? Because it's very, very easy on the, the, maybe the extreme conservative side to say, the Bible says this about those people, so I'm just going to do what the Bible says. And a lot of conservative Christians do that. On the far other liberal extreme of that, are it doesn't matter what the Bible says, we got to love people, and we're going to do that, because that's the most important thing. And there has to be somewhere in between that, because Jesus held an incredibly high view of Scripture. Like, it was the most important thing to Jesus. And yet he loved people in such a dramatic way that it made the religious people of his time uncomfortable. That the church people of Jesus' day said, I don't think he should be that chummy with those sinners. Like they had a problem with it. Jesus didn't care, because that's what love looked like. Ruxy Cavey says, if we can approach the Bible like a conservative, like Jesus did, and if we can love people like radical liberals, like Jesus did, then we are probably getting somewhere in the ballpark of what it is to be a follower of Jesus. That's way easier said than done. But where we hold our, our value of Scripture and our value of people together, we don't just ignore it. It's a lot easier to just be a conservative. It's a lot easier to just be a liberal. But I think Jesus calls us somewhere in between to wrestle through these things and say, what does love actually look like towards other people? And it will inconvenience us at times. And a lot of us will miss out and fail the love test because we're not willing to be inconvenienced. We're not willing to change our plans. We're not willing to sacrifice for somebody else. And again, this is where this story hits us in the face a little bit. We had a couple in Sudbury, a couple of ladies, uh, and they lived in the same apartment complex. I think I've shared a little bit about them with you guys before. And they were really good people, and they both loved Jesus. And uh, one had some pretty strong mental challenges, and one had some pretty strong emotional challenges. And they were really good friends, but just the combination of personalities was also like a powder keg and a torch a little bit. Uh, just when they got together, it could just explode into things. And so, um, so there was often some tension and conflict, and we were often kind of smoothing it out. And 
uh, one year while we were up there, it was Sarah's birthday, and we were having dinner there at home that night, and everything is ready, and the phone rings, and Sarah goes to pick it up. It's just someone going to wish her a happy birthday, obviously. And so Sarah picks it up, and it's one of these women, and I was on the other side of the house, but I could hear from across the house just, and Sarah's holding the phone back like this. And long story short, and again, these guys got along until they didn't. And when they didn't, it could be explosive. And they had gotten into a physical fight at the apartment complex. And police had been called. And the landlord was there. And they were getting kicked out. And, and so what started that night was you know, a conversation and many conversations of me being on the phone and, and talking to both of them and trying to calm down and talking to the landlord and trying to get some mercy and talking to the police and trying to get charges dropped. And, and for weeks and months, this went on. And, you know, birthday dinner ruined kind of at that point, obviously. And Sarah was involved in it and other people in the church came and they tried to help and, and there was just a lot of drama all the time and these were two really hurting ladies and they took a lot of time and they took a lot of energy and honestly there were points where the phone would ring and you see who it was and you just go, oh, again, we've spoken four times today already. So tempting just to hit ignore. And many in the church were coming to me saying, I'm just feeling the same way. I'm just, oh, it's just, it's sucking the life out of me. It's draining me. And so we did talk a bit about boundaries and, and, and what healthy boundaries can look like. But when we come back to the question of what does love look like for people who are, are hurting, I don't see as a Christian where I'm allowed to just walk on by. I don't see where I can do that. And again, that's not to say there might not be healthy boundaries in certain cases, but the, co the command that Jesus gives us that's so different than any other teacher or philosophy in the world is he says, love even your enemies. And that's the point of this story, is that's what enemy love looks like. I'm going to stop and serve and sacrifice and inconvenience myself for even my enemy. And, and maybe we don't feel like we have enemies in our lives, but just maybe who is that for you? Maybe there is someone in your life that you have cut off. Maybe there is someone for good reason that you have kept a distance from. But again, who are we as a church? You know, what are the groups that we are staying away from? Uh, if loving your enemies is the standard, then that changes everything. Because I remember a few years ago when we were talking as a nation about do we let Syrian refugees into the country? And there was some concern about that, understandable concern of, well, what if terrorists sneak in, right? America's dealing with this right now. What if some terrorists sneak in? And they go, okay, well, that's, that's a very broad thing to say, but that's maybe a reasonable concern. But for many people, the solution was a couple of terrorists might get in, so we're just not going to do anything at all. And again, that's way easier. It's easier just to walk on by. It's easier to say, I'm not going to engage, and this problem is messy, and this problem is difficult, so we're just not going to do anything at all. And my contention here that I throw out to you is that if we are going to be Christ-like, we are not left with that as an option. That even where it is messy and even where it is difficult, we're called to jump into that messiness. Because if we're concerned about Syrian refugees coming in, the Christ-like solution is not, well, then nobody gets to come in, period. That doesn't look like love to me. See where it gets messy, right? So, man, we got to wrestle through some of this. We got to weigh this out. We got to talk to smart people on both sides of the debate, and we got to figure out what does love look like? Even for those people who traditionally uh, would be our enemies. I'm not talking Syrians, but, but you know, terrorists. What does love look like towards them. And we get a picture of what it can look like in the story, in the, in the Samaritan story. 
There's also something we need to think about, and it's the difference between acceptance and agreement. And I've talked to you about this before when we were going through our sexuality series a couple of years ago, is that there is a difference between acceptance and agreement when it comes to how we treat other people. So we can accept anybody from any walk of life, in any particular religion or lifestyle or whatever, we can and should accept everybody because they are made in the image of God and they are worthy of honor and dignity because of that. They are created by him. They are loved by him. Jesus died for them, whether they've accepted that or not. So we can love and accept everyone on earth on that basis. They were made by God in the image of God, and we can accept them because of that. That doesn't mean we agree necessarily with everything they believe or with everything that they do or with everything that they've done. But the problem is, is that the church has often mixed those things together so profoundly, and Christians have said, in order to demonstrate my disagreement with you, I'm going to withhold my acceptance. I'm not going to associate with you. I'm going to cut you off. I'm going to walk on by. In order to demonstrate that we're not in agreement, I wouldn't want anyone to think that I'm okay with what you're doing, so I'll withhold my acceptance of you. And again, it kind of makes sense in a way, but guess who didn't do that at all? It's the Sunday school answer. Jesus wasn't worried at all. He didn't say, man, if I go have dinner with that tax collector, people are going to think my ministry is pro-tax collector. He didn't say, if I hang out with the prostitutes, people are going to say, what is a godly man doing hanging out with prostitutes? You know what? Some people did say that. You know what else? He didn't care at all. Because he said, this is what love looks like. And I'm going to go to the ones who are hurting. And I'm going to go to the ones who are far from God. And I'm going to demonstrate love by breaking bread with them and showing that love in practical ways. And I could care less if churchy people judge me for that. Because that's what love looks like. Jesus didn't worry about if I show love to this person, people might think I agree. Jesus went to a cross to deal with the fact that he loved and accepted us even though he disagreed with the sin in our lives. That he reached out to me in my sinfulness, and he reached out to you in your sinfulness, and he loved and accepted us and called us home, even in our sinfulness. And it doesn't mean he agreed with everything that we did. There's stuff that we've done in our lives he fundamentally disagrees with and that he died for, but he offered that to us because that's what love looks like. And Jesus said, I went to a cross to show you what love looks like. If you're going to follow me, you are going to take up your own cross and you are going to follow me in that as well. We don't just follow Jesus in his teaching and in his blessings and in the grace and mercy and eternal life and all the wonderful things. We get that, but Jesus says, you're also going to take up your cross. There will be sacrifice involved if you want to follow me. Putting others first is not always easy. Loving people is not always easy. Doing the right thing is not always easy. There is a cost to these things. But Jesus said, I paid a cost for you. And if you are going to walk in love, there will be a cost that you pay sometimes as well. And many people will not do it. They will turn away from Jesus because they don't want to pay the price. But for those of us who press hard after the way of Jesus, there is grace to do what he's called us to do. And it reminds us that love is always an action word. We talk about love primarily as a feeling, but it's not just a feeling. It may start there. Love is always an action word. Sometimes we love people even if we're not feeling it. We show the love practically, and then the emotions follow later. But love always calls us to action. It's not enough to just simply say, I love all people. What are you doing to show that love? We see it very practically in the story. Tony Campolo, American minister, 
he has done a lot of work trying to kind of help conservative Christians and the LGBT community and to try and kind of build some bridges and, and to do, you know, to explore what does love look like in this context. And he got so tired of doing what he was doing and trying to be gracious and trying to be loving and conservative Christian leaders coming and challenging him and giving him a hard time and saying, you know, you need to sign up with us. We're trying to fight gay marriage. We're trying to fight gay adoption. We're trying to stand against these laws. Uh, come and fight with us. And Tony Campolo would say, I'm trying to love these people. And the, the people would say, hey, we love the gay community. We love them. But we're just trying to be faithful to God's word. And he got so sick of hearing that that he started to say, please list for me the ways in which you are showing love to the LGBT community. What are the ways in which you are showing love? And you're not allowed to say by telling the truth because you're going to do that anyway. Like, how do they know that you love them? What is that looking like? Because it seems like all they know about Christians is that in their view, we're trying to take their rights in the way and ruin their lives. And I'm not saying we don't stand for our convictions on biblical truth, but the challenge is what does love look like in that case? It's not always black and white. It's not always easy. It's not always easy to hold to our biblical convictions and, and struggle with what does it mean like to love somebody else? The classic example is if I say I love my wife, but if I neglect her and if I abuse her and if I scream at her, you would be right to question why do you think you love your wife? What is it that we're seeing in the way you treat her that demonstrates love? Love is always an action word. And it's not enough just to say, hey, I love you and do nothing to show it. Love always spurs us on towards action. Jesus gives us the golden rule where he says, treat others as you would want to be treated. And that helps make this all actually a whole lot easier. Because if I'm beaten at the side of the road and left for dead, how would I want to be treated? Well, I would hope someone would stop. I would hope that there would be no excuse, you know, biblical or practical or otherwise, that would be so big that people would just walk on by me as I lie there on the side of the road. As we look at Syrian refugees coming in, well, how would you want to be treated if bombs were falling on your house and you wanted a safe place to raise your children? And that's not to say we don't have to wrestle through security and other things and legitimate concerns, but Sarah has been spending some time with a Syrian refugee family. They've come and settled in Leamington. Uh, Sarah went to SECC and said, I want to help, and so they connected her, and so it's a, a husband and wife and some young kids. They're about our age. Sarah's been spending a lot of time with the mom. And as you talk to them and hear their story, it becomes, they, like us, were living in a safe country. They were minding their own business. And then the bombs started falling on their houses. Like, not abstractly. Like, bombs were falling in their neighborhood. And as parents, they are saying, where can we go to raise our children in a place where bombs aren't going to fall on their heads? And Canada was one of the places they could do that. How would you want to be treated if that was you? And then how are you going to respond then? Because we love ourselves. But the call of Jesus is love your neighbor as yourself. And if I would want a country to, to welcome me and to, to give me a chance and to protect me and, and help my kids live in safety, then I have to look at Syrian refugees through that same lens and be able to say, okay, so what does love look like then? Philip Yancey says, this is paraphrased, there is something about Jesus that drew sinners to him in droves. There is something about many Christians that drive sinners away instead. What has happened? Where has the disconnect happened for those of us who are followers of Jesus? That there is something about him where, yeah, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the sinners, the wicked people were having dinner with him all the time. They were happy to spend time with him. They were happy to be in his presence. There were crowds and crowds of people that were drawn to him. 
And, and why am I not doing that in my life? Why are there not crowds drawn to my grace that I'm showing or my mercy? Why are people not coming in droves in the same way? And we can cop out by saying, well, he was actually God and we're not. But that's not good enough for me, I don't think. There, there is a disconnect, for sure. And so what is it? And one of the answers, at least, has to be the love factor, is that they felt the love of God through Jesus. It was something that he showed them practically, and it's modeled in this story where he says, this is what love looks like. In this story, it's the church people who walk by and don't stop. It's the enemy who stops and cares and sacrifices and loves. And Jesus says, this is what love is like. And so the parable uh, hits us hard in some ways. As we say, where in our lives are there people that we are walking on by? Where are there people we're keeping at arm's length? Where is it just easier just to ignore a problem? Easier just to, to throw the baby out with the bathwater instead of jumping in to the complexity and the messiness and the, the inconvenience of what love can look like? Because as inconvenient and messy as it was, a life got saved in that story, right? Children didn't lose a father in that story. A wife didn't lose her husband in that story. Maybe there's generations of more to come because one person stopped and took the time. So where are we walking on by and what can we do differently on that front? We have an email address, questions at meadowbrook.ca. If you have a question about the message at all, we'd love to keep it going and keep the conversation going. That's always open, so please feel free to use that. Just so there's no confusion on the meaning of this parable, Jesus wraps it up with this sentence, now go and do likewise. So just so we don't say, huh, I wonder, you know, what's, what is he getting at? And is it just a metaphor? It's like, no, Jesus says, go and do that. Go and be the good Samaritan, even to the enemies of your life. Go and do likewise. And it is what Jesus has done for us, because the Bible says we were his enemies at one point, and he came near us, he drew near to us. So who are we walking by? either individuals or groups of people, where are we uh, just choosing the easier route of staying to ourselves, not getting involved, not getting messy? Where is that in our lives? And what will it look like for us to take a step towards love instead and to, to choose the loving path, to choose the Christ-like path? We're gonna sing a song of worship. We will close in prayer together. I'm gonna ask you to stand to your feet with me, please, as we get ready to close off today. Yesterday morning, uh, we were at our house and we had a lot of snow recently as we all did obviously. And we have a driveway that uh, overlooks kind of the main road in Wheatley. And so every time a power comes by, the snow will go onto our driveway, into the entrance of our driveway. So Laura was going out yesterday to go hit the, to go get some groceries and she's backing up the van. And a couple of minutes later, I hear a knock on the front door. I figured it's gotta be Laura. So she got stuck on her driveway, right on the front. And I thought, okay, let's go dig it out. So we're out there trying to dig it out and it's hung up pretty good and the tires are spinning, the tires are in great shape. We're not getting anywhere. And we're trying to dig this thing out and there's people driving by. Five or six vehicles drove by. My favorite guy was the guy that drove by, slows down, rubbernecks, looks at us and keeps going. And we were stuck. And I'm pushing on the back and she's in the front trying to drive. We're pushing on the front to get her, trying to get out. We were stuck, it took us 20 minutes. It shouldn't have taken us that long. But I remember all these cars driving by yesterday. I looked at Laura, I said, people are the worst. People are the worst. I said that. I was, I was a, a little annoyed that nobody decided to help us out. And we finally got the vehicle out. And I remember checking my heart after. I'm going to go, Lord, I got to figure that out. And she got out, it was all good. So I'm in the driveway and I'm cleaning the driveway. 
And I looked down the road, guess who got stuck? My neighbor. So I started walking towards him to go help him out. And he ended up getting out, it was all good. So I tell you that simple thing, because here's the thing about loving people and the people that are different than us. It's in the small things that matter as well. It's in the small things that we can do. See, now often at churches when we leave, we have a tendency to finish service, we get up, we turn around, we talk to the people we know. But we don't go out of our way to meet people in our foyers, in our cafeterias, that often we walk by and they're sitting by themselves. I've seen it, I've done it myself, I need to be better at it as well. But here's a simple challenge for every single one of us. Let's start small. Let's just start small. So when this service is done today, reach out to somebody you've never talked to before. Go say hi to somebody in the cafe. Instead of turning around to the people you just know, say hi to somebody that's across the room from you. And those are the small things that can help us manage the harder things in our life that we're gonna figure out. It's not easy, I get it. But here's the beautiful thing. Jesus told us to do this and he gave us a great example. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that uh, we can come together like this and we're on this journey together and we're not perfect and we're gonna spur each other on so we can become the church you want us to be. And Lord, help us to have a love that overflows for all people, no matter where they are in our life, whether we like them or not. Lord, give us love that comes from you not out of my flesh, not of our flesh, because of we can't do it that way, but give us love that flows through the power of the Holy Spirit, that is rooted in love, in forgiveness, in grace, and in mercy. And Lord, as, as we come today, as we go into our week, help us to do practical things that are small so we can have the courage to take care of those big things in our life that we need to figure out as well. So Lord Jesus, give us love. Give us love. Help us to see people through your eyes. And Lord, I know that I can drop the ball often in this area. And I pray, Jesus, that you would forgive us as a church, as a people group, when we have not crossed the street or when we've walked on by, no matter how big or small it may be. So Lord, all the glory to you this week. Help us to serve you in the practical ways that you put in front of us. I pray, Jesus, that something would even happen today that would be so profound for us that we'd recognize it's from you and help us not to walk away, but to go to the other side and to say, I'm here to serve in the name of Jesus. We ask this in your name. Amen. Have a great week. And again, come on forward if you need prayer.